Good morning, friends, and welcome to church this morning. Uh, it is great to be together. Uh, my name's John Thorpe. If I haven't met you, I'm the senior minister here. And uh, welcome uh, today. It is great, uh, particularly if this is your first time. We're going to open up Ephesians together. Uh, so why don't we pray uh, that God is with us as we listen to his word. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you show us, that you gather us together as brothers and sisters. Uh, we thank you that we're here together today uh, to encourage one another to hear your word. And I pray now that I will speak uh, clearly and faithfully uh, from your word in Ephesians. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us and convicting us of the things that we need to hear. We pray for these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, if you are just joining us, uh, or if you need uh, a little jog of your memory, uh, the plot so far in Ephesians uh, started with Paul reminding us that God is in control. Uh, it is God who chooses, it is God who saves. And then Paul goes on uh, to say to the Ephesian church, remember who you are. You were once, by nature, objects of wrath. But now, because of the grace of God, you have been saved into the body of Christ. And so we are united with Christ and we are united with each other. And as we come to this section at the back half of chapter 4, we move from being who we are in Christ to how we relate together. And how we relate together as the body of Christ is going to be one of the most significant factors in whether we thrive as a church or whether we just survive. Because in the words of Jesus, a house divided cannot stand. But a house united can do something infinitely greater than the sum of its parts. And isn't that what we want together? You know, as we come to church each week, whether it's gathering on Sunday morning or at a different time, we want this to be a joy. We want to turn up and take pleasure in seeing other people. You know, it's great as we come in each morning, we watch people standing outside, catching up, laughing together. We come inside, we pray for each other, we care about each other's, you know, both the joys of life but also the challenges. We care for each other during the week. Isn't that what we want to be as a community? And if you're work, walking in here for the, the first time, uh, I hope that you would see that the world in here is different to our world out there, that we want to be a beacon of light in our community. We want to be something profoundly different because of what Christ has done for us. But for that to happen, then we're going to need two things. Firstly, we're going to need an incredible act of God. Uh, in his mercy, we're going to need his spirit to shape us and mould us to be more like him. And we're going to need to be committed as individuals, as a community, to keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. And so as we look at this passage today, uh, the context is set up in verses 17 to 24. That paints the picture, but I'm going to start at 22. So this is where uh, we are today. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And our new self is going to compel us to do two things. Firstly, it's going to compel us to stop sinning against one another. And secondly, it's going to compel us to forgive others when they sin against us. And this passage gives us a whole list of things which we need to turn away from and to turn towards, to put off these things and to put on a new self. Now, I'm going to focus just on three. Uh, So today we're going to look at lying, anger, and how we use our words. But they, they establish a principle for how we live together. So let's begin at verse 25 if you've got your Bible open. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of the one body. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you remember it, uh, neighbour is used to describe uh, anyone, uh, and in particular those who are not part of your community, even those people who are your enemies. And so we have this picture of a Samaritan man, a natural enemy, helping a Jewish man in a moment of crisis. But in this particular passage, neighbour is talking about how we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, which isn't permission to go and lie to everyone else, but the particular focus here is how we speak to one another. And there's nothing quite like a lie is there to destroy trust either by what we say or what we choose not to say, the objective is to intentionally deceive someone else. And when that happens, it then breaks the trust that we share together. It becomes difficult, doesn't it, to believe anything that was said before or anything that has come after. And once that trust is broken, it's incredibly difficult to rebuild. We lie for all sorts of reasons. You know, sometimes we lie for self-gain. Sometimes we lie to cover up the things that we should have done or shouldn't have done. Uh, sometimes we lie just because it's easier to avoid the conflict that comes from telling the truth. But whatever our motive, as Christians, we are called to be people who are characterized by telling the truth. But if we are going to tell each other the truth, then in the words of Jack Nicholson, a few good men, if you remember the movie, are you able to handle the truth? Are you willing to listen when someone shares something that is difficult to hear? Are you willing to forgive me if I come to you and I confess my sin? See, truth only flourishes when there is a willingness for grace and compassion for one another. Truth is not sharing every thought that comes into our head. And simply because I believe something is true doesn't make it true. We all have our own opinions and perspectives and sometimes agendas. And how we tell the truth is going to be just as important as the truth we are telling. 
So when we speak to one another, the temptation is to justify the way we speak by saying, I'm just telling them the truth. And actually, it's an expression of our own opinion or our own frustration. As truth tellers, our desire isn't to simply vent our frustration. Our desire is for the good and the godliness of the other. And that means we've got to come forward recognising our own motivations and our own struggles in that. Because it's so tempting, isn't it, again to use the words of Jesus, to look at the speck in someone else's eye and not see the plank in our own. And we kind of know this, don't we? We know that within ourselves we have all sorts of warped motivations. We know that we don't always express things in a way that reflect you know, the love for the other or showing self-control. The challenge for us today isn't knowing the problem. The challenge for us today is recognising how do we actually move forward and put it into practice. So number two in our life together, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Uh, The quote uh, is a direct quote from Psalm 4. And it's an interesting verse because in this, we usually think about anger as always being bad. Uh, But in this verse, there's a distinction. Do not let your anger lead to sin. And in fact, there are times when we should be angry. We should be angry when people's sin causes others to stumble. We should be angry when a preacher preaches what itching ears want to hear rather than the word of God. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And we see God demonstrate righteous anger all the way through scripture when he judges and judges justly. The difficulty is that our righteous anger can very quickly become self-righteous anger. And it's no longer about a desire for godliness. It's about me and my rage. And it's about me expressing how I feel about them. And when that happens, anger turns to sin. So do not let righteous anger turn to sin and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Uh, This is not talking about taking a bit of time out uh, to calm down. and We all need to do that sometimes. Uh, But this is about allowing anger to simply sit and fester. And from my experience, when we either say the wrong thing or we say the right thing the wrong way, and we don't then seek resolution, we leave the bridges burning. And the longer those bridges are burning, the harder it is to go back and resolve it, and so we put it off, put it off, and put it off. That's my temptation. Don't know about your temptation. But we don't like conflict, and so we would prefer to sit in our anger than deal with it. But if your anger is righteous or unrighteous, we are called to deal with our anger quickly. Notice in this passage, the onus isn't on the person who is right or wrong. The onus in this passage is on the person who is angry. Because the temptation, 
Again, if you're anything like me, you're seeing all of my sinfulness has come out here. This is as much a sermon to me as it is to anyone. But the temptation is when we're angry at someone, when we feel that they have sinned against us, then we feel that they should be the ones coming back, they should be the ones saying sorry, and they should be the ones seeking reconciliation. But in this passage, the onus is on the person who is angry. If you are angry, righteous or unrighteous, we need to acknowledge that. We need to confront the person constructively, desiring reconciliation and godliness. But what do we do when we seek reconciliation and they don't want it? Whether we've done the wrong thing and we're trying to apologise, or they've done the wrong thing by us and we're trying to resolve it, what do we do when they don't want reconciliation? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's an incredibly confronting passage about how we deal with conflict, isn't it? Yeah, the first bit you can imagine, go and talk to the person one-on-one. You think tough, but I could perhaps achieve that. Uh, We can see the idea and the wisdom of perhaps taking someone as a mediator uh, to work with us. That You can imagine that being healthy and constructive. But it's pretty confronting when you get to the point of bring it to the church or expel someone from the church, not out of punishment, but so they can recognise their sin and seek reconciliation. That is incredibly confronting. And it says two things to us. It says that sin is serious, that God takes our sin seriously. And secondly, sin isn't just between me and another, that sin actually affects our whole community together. And again, we know that from experience, don't we? When two people are in conflict, then they do talk to the people around them and you end up with sides and all those sorts of, you know, unconstructive, destructive things. We know that. And what are we called to do? We're called as a church to be united together. But there's also a call, so as much as there's a call to confront sin, there's also a call to offer forgiveness. So in verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus, this is Matthew 18, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now in Jewish culture, the going rate to be gracious in forgiveness was three times. Okay, but Peter, he knows Jesus. He knows he sets the bar pretty high. And so he's come back and said, not just three, but Lord, how about seven? Okay, this is exceeding all cultural expectation. And Jesus turns to him. I can imagine he's thinking, nice try, Peter. Uh, Not seven, but 77. Because sin will continue to raise its ugly head in our community. 
And we are called to continue to forgive, to continue to offer grace and generosity. And if we are unwilling to seek reconciliation, if we are unwilling to offer forgiveness, then we give Satan a foothold. It must warm the cockles of Satan's heart when he watches a community of Christians tear itself apart from within. He doesn't need the church, the, the society around us, you know, beating down on us. We can pull each other apart from within. And what a tragedy. A group of people who are transformed by the grace of God, who have been given the Holy Spirit. When we destroy each other from within, then we deny the grace that we've been given. We cannot control the fact that people will sin against us. It is going to happen. It will continue to happen. We can control how we respond. Number three in our life together, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The word for unwholesome talk uh, is used here and in other places to describe rotting fish or decaying stone. You know, it's, it's talking about the destruction of good things. You know, we like to say, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You know, it, it's, a, it's a valiant expression under fire. Uh, but we know it's not true. Uh, we know that words are incredibly powerful. We know that they are incredibly are painful and words that were said often years ago continue to impact how we see ourselves and how we see relationships years later. It's so easy to be critical. Uh, in one of my former roles, uh, when I worked for YouthWorks, I used to visit lots of different churches, which was a great privilege uh, to work with churches as they sought to use their gifts together. And I met lots of churches where there was a real joy. Uh, as they gathered together. But I also met lots of churches that were being quietly torn apart by petty divisions. And again, just conversations through the week, sowing those seeds of discontent. And it's hard, isn't it? Because there are things that will frustrate us together. We look at the world differently. You look at, can look at one picture and see it as something absolutely beautiful. I can look at that same picture and go, I can think of few things worse. You know, we're just different. We see the world through different lens. But sometimes we take those small differences and turn them into big things. Constructive debate is a good thing. We want to wrestle together to use our gifts wisely. That is a good thing. When we come together this afternoon for our church meeting to talk about ministry together, we want different ideas. That is a blessing that people see things differently because together we'll come up with something better than we would have alone. That's a good thing. But when we use that constructive debate for something destructive, that's when we lose the unity that we share together. I think one of the challenges in a church is that we are dependent on each other. We've all been given roles and responsibilities to play. Uh, we've given leaders the responsibility to lead ministries. And so can I encourage you as someone who works under leaders 
to be willing to submit to their authority. We've given them a job, let's support them as they do that job. And sometimes ministry decisions, uh, sometimes choice decisions won't be the decisions we like. You know, it might be uh, your responsibility to do training as an SRE teacher. It might be your responsibility to come to a, a ministry team meeting. It might be the choice of colour of the walls that we paint. We're not painting the walls, by the way. But <laughs> hypothetically, if we did. But you know, there are so many things uh, and choices that we need to make. And we've placed people in positions of responsibility to make choices. And so how do we work with them and support them in it? And if people make ungodly choices, then we need a path to resolve that. But it can't just be sowing the seeds of discontent. And sometimes decisions won't go our way. If we choose to paint the walls lavender, you go, okay, lavender it is. We are not, please, let's not paint the walls lavender. But if we did... But you go, if that's what we've got, then let's do the best ministry we can in our lavender room. <laughs> but whatever it is, how do we use our gifts? How do we respect uh, the responsibilities of others uh, to use their gifts? And Paul's plea is rather than being a church that causes rot and decay with our words, let's be a church that builds each other up. Let's be a church that is characterised by words that encourage and encourage godliness and encourage joy, where people feel loved and supported and cared for and valued. They're the words that make a difference, a constructive difference. They're they're the words that will allow us to be a light to the world in darkness. And in the same way that Paul warns uh, not to give Satan a foothold, He then warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In chapter 1, Paul is describing the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. Uh, But the Holy Spirit is also the one who is shaping us to be more like Christ. And so when we use our words like we did before we were followers of Christ, We're rejecting the Holy Spirit in us. We we know that the Holy Spirit is drawing us to be more like Jesus. And we're saying, you know what? I know it, but I don't want it. I want to go back to my old ways. I want to go back to my old sinful habits because they're easier, because they're more entertaining, because I can get a good laugh out of it. That's our temptation. But if we are in Christ, then we are new people. And we are called to live as new people. I don't believe, uh, and particularly looking at a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, that we can fall away as Christians. If we are chosen and saved by grace, then God's grace is enough to hold us. But if there is no evidence of grace, if there is no fruit of the Spirit in us, if there is no willingness to use words of reconciliation, if there is no willingness to forgive, then we have to ask ourselves, is the Holy Spirit really present? And sometimes we need to hear that. Sometimes we are Christians, we need to repent of a habit we've got into. Sometimes, for some of us here, it might challenge us to say, am I really a follower of Jesus at all? 
I know I'm a churchgoer, but am I a follower of Jesus? And if that's you, then today perhaps is a day to be to recognise that, to be confronted by that, not in a bad way, but a good way. Because when we're confronted, it allows us to then do something about it, to repent, to acknowledge that God is Lord and Saviour, and to follow him. And finally, in our passage together, be imitators of God. The first words of chapter 5 serve as a link between the section we've just looked at and what's about to come ahead. And this is what it says. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The world's view of life and love starts with me at the centre of everything. It's all about me, my wants and my rights. But Jesus says real love is sacrificial. Real love puts other people first and real love isn't conditional on them loving me. So think about Jesus on the cross. He didn't die because of a lack of courage to stand up to oppressors. He didn't die because uh, the people before him were so thankful that he wanted to express his love back. He died in front of a mocking crowd. If you are the Christ, then come down from the cross. And yet he chose to die for our sake, to save us from sin, and as an act of the ultimate expression of worship to his Father whether he does his father's will perfectly. That's the example we have of grace and forgiveness. So can I encourage you today, if you have unresolved relationships with a brother or sister in Christ, then can I encourage you to seek reconciliation as much as what is in your power. It might be that you have sinned against them and you'll be asking for forgiveness. It might be that they have sinned against you and you are offering restoration and forgiveness. But whatever it is, is it possible to go and seek reconciliation? In, within, within whatever power you've got and with the help of the Holy Spirit, is that possible? It might not be possible. They might be unrepentant for their sin. They might be unwilling to even recognise what they have done as sinful. They might be unwilling to accept your apology and request for forgiveness. But whatever is within your power, can you seek to be a peacemaker? I hope over the last couple of weeks uh, that we've been reminded uh, of the joy it is to be in Christ. Uh, that God who is sovereign is in control, that we are part of his family, that we are united together. They are all good things to remember and praise God for them. But I also hope as we continue in Ephesians, we're very realistic about our life together, that we are works in progress, but we are not perfect. We are going to continue to disappoint. We are going to continue to sin against one another. But where there is sin, let us also be a community that is ready with grace and forgiveness. And let's be a community that looks more and more like Christ every day. Let me pray. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for the grace that you show each of us, that you would gather us into your family, that you would give us your spirit. Lord, we're confronted by this passage today uh, because it puts a mirror to us that helps us look at ourselves and sometimes we don't like what we see. Lord, where there are sin, where there is unresolved sin in our life, Lord, we pray that we seek your forgiveness and and the forgiveness of others around us. Lord, we pray that we will have the same grace that you show us, that we will be able to forgive others. But in all things, I pray that we will be the united body of Christ that you've made us and that we will continue to grow to be more like you. Amen.